So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to Genesis chapter 37. I am excited about today for a few reasons. One, we are starting a series that I believe is going to challenge us. It's a, it's a daring series. It's a dangerous series. I believe it's going to shake things up in our life. I believe it will shake things up in our church for the glory of God and the salvation of our community, the edification of the church, and things need to be shaken up because yesterday's bold steps of faith are today's comfort zones. And so God is always calling us out of the boat to walk on water, sink or swim, because he wants us in a place of desperation upon him. When Christ returns, may we not be one of the 11 who are tucked away safely in the boat, but may we be out of the boat, walking on water, desperate for him. So, Genesis chapter 37. The name of this series is God is Greater, because we're going to see Joseph had many obstacles in pursuit of God's calling upon his life. We're going to see that he was mistreated, he was abused, he was forsaken, he was betrayed, he was thrown into a pit, he was falsely accused, he was thrown into prison, and yet God was greater than anything that came against him. So it is with us. God is greater than anything that has come against God's calling upon our lives. We don't have to shake our fist at people. We don't have to be angry at people who might make us their target. We don't have to have anxiety in our heart and mind and lose sleep at night because God is greater. It's not about us and it is not up to us. God is greater than anything that could ever come against us. Well, I'm also excited about today because today is Baptism Sunday, so uh, stick around afterwards. It's going to be downstairs. And we're going to gather around the baptistry and celebrate people who are taking steps of faith and steps of surrender as their life is an anthem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you may not know this, but Joseph's life was an anthem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, there were pictures of Christ, there were types of Christ. For example, David was a type of Christ and his, his kingly authority... Moses was a type of Christ in his, in, his, in his leadership. As Moses was in the wilderness for, for uh, 40 years, so Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Jo Jonah was a type of Christ. As Jonah was the scapegoat who was thrown overboard, so Jesus was the scapegoat who absorbed our sins. As Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so Jesus was in the belly of the grave for three days and three nights. And Joseph is a type of Christ. And we're going to see that as we walk through this series. And we're also going to see that like Joseph, our life is to be an anthem of Jesus Christ, to declare Jesus, to shine Jesus. And that's one of the most beautiful things about baptism. If somebody follows Jesus in baptism, they're buried in the likeness of his death. They're raised in his glorious resurrection. And their life is a, is a declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as ours should be every day, all throughout the day. So we're going to begin this series with Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph steps onto the scene of Scripture. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Israel, or, or Jacob, or Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons. And one of Jacob's sons was named Joseph. 
And we're going to see in, Joseph, in, in, in Genesis chapter 37 that Joseph had a dream. This is such an important teaching. Because if you're 15 or 16 or 17 years of age, and Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 is 17 years of age, God has a dream for you. And like Joseph's uh, granddad, Abraham, God had a dream for him when he was 75 years of age. It doesn't matter if you're 17, and it doesn't matter if you're 75. And when Abraham was 99 years old, he asked God, does the dream stand? Does the dream remain? And God said, the dream is on. It doesn't matter if you're 8, like Josiah, 17, like Joseph, 75, or 99, like Abraham. God has a dream for you. God always has a dream for you to call you out of the boat, to walk on water. Because again, yesterday's steps of faith are today's comfort zones. So we have to always hear from Christ afresh. We have to always hear his calling, his beckoning. Step out of the boat. Trust my promises for you. So this morning, my prayer is that you would learn, you would be equipped with the skill set to hear what God's dream is for you. And to filter your desires, because Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, once wrote in The Passion of Purity, I wished I wished what God wished, and if I can't wish what, I, what God wished, I wish what I wish would just go away. How many of you have been there when your heart was divided and confused and trying to distinguish between your desires and God's will for your life? So I pray that we're all equipped this morning with the skill set to hear and to discern God's calling upon your life and also emboldened to step out in faith and to dare that dream, that God-given dream. Let me begin with Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived, verse 1, in the land of his father's soldiernings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old. How many of you are in middle school, high school? Raise your hand. All right, this is for you. How many of you are in college, college age? Raise your hand. All right, this is for you. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Joseph is one of the few people in Scripture where there's never a sin mentioned about him. Never a sin. Now, there's, there was slander toward him, but as Scripture paints a very clear, very real picture, portrait of people, there's no sins ever mentioned about Joseph. Perhaps when he was younger, maybe he had pride. Maybe we can ascertain that from Scripture. Perhaps he had to grow in the art of diplomacy and prudence. We can glean that from Scripture. Verse 3. Now Israel, Joseph's dad, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably to him. So thus our plot thickens. Joseph is the despised of all of his brothers because he's their father's son. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. Here we go. God-given dreams and visions. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that your word would be spiritual seeds that plant into the fertile soil of our heart, mind, and soul and water these seeds by your spirit, by our faith. Let it produce a harvest of glory for you and hope for the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. May we all be unsettled, whether there's the 17-year-olds like Joseph or the 75-year-olds like Abram when he first received a God-given vision. Lord, may we all be unsettled. May we all dare to walk by faith for your glory, the hope of the world, and the edification of your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, Satan called a summit with his most vile demons. The CEO of Deception and Death assumed his place at the head of the table. One by one, the demons slithered and strutted into the unholy of of unholies. The meeting of twisted minds was silhouetted by a blazing fireplace the size, of an, the size of an entire wall. It was actually a window to hell where Satan and the demon's trophies wreathed in torment inside. The sound of gnashing of teeth filled Satan's lair. Satan's voice lowered as he emphasized the severity of their situation and thus the purpose of their meeting. The enemy's followers would become too dangerous if they discovered God's call upon their lives. Their disgusting joy would infect their churches and homes. Their putrid message of life would spread like gangrene throughout the nations. The enemy would receive glory from their their miserable existence. We cannot allow this. The forum is open. So the most manipulative and mistrusted of all the demons hissed first. Simple. We hide the enemy's dreams for his creation in space. They can never reach it. Satan cut him off mid-sentence. Are you so naive? One day mankind will create a rocket. They'll fly into space. They would discover their dream. The most deceptive and disliked of all the demons, gloating with arrogance, leaned back and seethed next. I have it. We bury the Creator's purpose on the ocean floor. His creation would never think to look there. It will, be a, it, it will be a sunken treasure. Satan's roar echoed through the lair. I'm surrounded by idiots. One day, mankind will build a submarine, explore the ocean's floor, and would discover their dreams. Then surprisingly, a rookie demon of no particular dislike or distrusted merit stunned everyone. There's no need to hide the enemy's purpose from his children. I've thoroughly scrutinized his book, his instruction manual, and I found a critical strategic error. The maker has already hidden his purpose for their lives by placing it inside their heart. They will never think to look inside the desires of their heart to discover their dreams. After a long silence... Satan began roaring orders. Bury them beneath constant activity. Dull them with endless entertainment. Ensure they are never quiet enough to hear the passion inside their heart. If they do hear their dreams, never let them feel worthy of those dreams. Keep them comparing their lives with each other and envious of each other. Keep them depressed with memories of better days. Keep them focused on their failures at any and all cost. Drown out their desires of their heart. Those desires are life to them and death to us. 
How realistic is that story? Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, we read, If you delight yourself in the Lord, God will give you the desires of your heart. Now that doesn't mean that if you want a bike, he'll give you a bike. It means he'll give you what to desire. The Bible also says your heart is, and my heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Well, when our heart is divided into two and three places, longing for several different things, satisfying our, and we satisfy our hearts in all sorts of outlets that this world offers to us, our heart is indeed deceitfully wicked. Who can discern a thing? But when our heart is unified, as David prayed, Oh God, unify my heart to fear your name. And when our heart longs for Christ, as St. Augustine said, Oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. When our hearts are unified, when our hearts are satisfied in Christ, when our hearts have learned to delight in the Lord, then we have a gift beating inside of our heart, and that gift is God's desires. Our heart begins to beat in rhythm and in sync with God's desires. So it's not that if we want a bike, God will give us a bike. When our heart is unified and our heart is satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone, so that this world can't give us anything and this world can't take anything from us because our heart is so at rest in Christ, then beating inside our heart is the rhythm of God's heartbeat. And those are God's desires. He doesn't give us a bike if we want a bike. He gives us what to desire. In other words, as Elizabeth Elliot said, our wishes go away and then God's wishes burn upon our heart. A God-given dream is something that is a reality. It's a burning passion in the heart of God. But it is not yet a reality in this world. And God's first step to make this burning passion a reality in this world is to make it a desire in our heart. Isn't that amazing? Let me repeat that. A God-given dream is a desire in the heart of God, but it is not yet a reality in this world. And God's first step to make this dream a reality in this world, this desire a reality in this world, is to first make it a desire in our heart. And God is looking for someone who will believe him for the impossible that he will place within their heart. Joseph was such a person. Oh, a person set on fire with a dream is dangerous. Billy Graham's autobiography, he tells the story of when he was in, I believe it was Sweeten College, there was a little island, and he was, studying, he was studying scripture, and there was a little island on campus, and he would canoe out to that island, and he would preach to the tree stumps, and then he would pray, oh God, turn these tree stumps into people. When he would row back to the other side, his classmates would poke fun of him and ask him if any squirrels got saved. But his heart was alive with a vision. And it changed the world. It changed millions of souls' eternal destinies. Who can forget Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream? When we let freedom ring, 
when we let freedom ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Oh, a person whose heart is set ablaze with a dream will change the world. So I want to share with you three characteristics of this God-given dream. First characteristic of this God-given dream that we ascertain from Scripture, from Genesis chapter 37, is this. God-given dreams are relational. They are relational with God. God-given dreams are relational. They are relational with God, and they are born out of time with Christ. So... Let's take a lesson from Moses. Moses, who also knew a lot about God-given dreams. Moses had a dream. He dared the dream. The dream shattered. He was 40 years of age. He tried to liberate his people in his own strength, in his own power, in his own resources, with his own ability, and it failed miserably. And then he's 40 years removed from that failure, and there he encounters God. And there God resuscitates the dream in his heart. And there Moses realized that it wasn't that God killed the dream. It's that God killed the dreamer. God killed the pride in the dreamer. God killed the self-sufficiency in the dreamer. And this is what we're going to see from Joseph's life. Joseph has a dream. But then God takes Joseph through a death process. And... It feels like the dream is dying. The dream is not dying. God is killing the dreamer. God is killing the pride in the dreamer so that all all is left is a soul that is completely dependent upon the power of Christ, completely surrendered to the authority of Christ, and completely ambitious for the glory of Christ. So in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 4, God called Moses... And there we see that God stirred Moses to desire his desires. Remember Elizabeth Elliot? I wished I could wish what God wished. My heart is divided into two or three places. As Ruth Bell Graham said, if God answered every one of my prayers, I would have married the wrong man several times. And so God has to take us through a purging process where our desires are burned away And God's desires burn with passion in our hearts. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 4. Watch as Moses' desires began beating in sync with God's desires. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And here begins a dialogue where Moses' heart begins to beat in sync with God's heart. And every day, God is calling us to turn away from the world and to look upon him and to seek him through his word, through his promises, to commune with him, to allow the spirit to unify our hearts And to allow our heart to find satisfaction in Christ 
so that our heart begins beating in sync with God's desires. As we seek Christ, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek seeks him. And one of the greatest ways that he rewards us is through a God-given dream, a God-given desire. And our heart begins beating in sync with his the spirit of Christ, when we seek Christ with all of our hearts, diligently, passionately, with repentance, rejoicing in grace, then the spirit holds us tight and our heart begins beating in sync with God's heart. And it is then that we begin to feel his burdens. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. When our heart begins to beat in sync with God's heart, the first thing is that we begin to feel his burdens. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. You see how Moses turned away from the world and he was communing with God and he began to feel the rhythm of God's heartbeat and first things first, Moses began feeling the things that burden God. Don't you know God has a burden? Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he wept and he wanted to gather them together like a mother hen their chicks. God has a burden and that burden is for lost people to be saved, bound people to be walked, to, to bound people to be liberated in freedom. Do you have God's burden? Oh, a person whose heart beats and sinks with God's heart and shares the burden of God. They're in they're, they're, they're enslaved by the burdens of heaven, but they're free from the burdens of the earth. And you can pick them out of a group of Christians. They are different. Their countenance is radiant. They're focused. They're steady. They're not distracted because their heart beats with God's burdens. And then we begin to sense his cause in verse 8. Our desire beats and sinks with his. We begin to sense his burdens. And then we begin, we, we begin to sense his cause in verse 8. And God said, And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And we begin to sense his cause. And we begin to, we begin to become impassioned about the things that will bring people freedom and liberty and that's the gospel and that's walking in righteousness and that's being spirit filled and then we begin to sense God's urgency in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Exodus come I will send you it's urgent it's now now is the time come I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people the children of Israel up out of Egypt and we realize that the most important thing in our life isn't causing people to like us or even to, 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 to just approve of us or a promotion at work or more square footage. But we have an urgency for what matters most and what matters most matters for eternity and what matters for eternity is souls. And then God continues to, to bring us to a place of, of closeness with him when we begin to rely upon his presence and power. Verse 11 and 12. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children up out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. God says, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be my strength upon you. You're right. You're nothing. And it's taken me 40 years 
to help you come to this place where you realize that. You're 40 years removed from a broken dream because you used to dream for your glory. You used to dream thinking that it would become a reality in your strength. But now you're 40 years from that. The dream's not dead. Now you're dead. You're dead to yourself. You're dead to self-confidence. You're dead to earthly ambition. Now I can use you because you have no alternative but to trust in me and me alone. And when we seek Christ and we fast and we pray, and we have to fast and pray because if your heart is not alive with a vision, you're in a very dangerous place. The scripture tells us without a vision, the people perish. Perish if you're not alive with a vision, burdened by a vision, weeping because of a vision, unsettled because of a vision. Then you're a lukewarm Christian. I am a lukewarm Christian. We're passive. We're apathetic. We're in the boat with the 11. We're not walking on water or sinking. Either way, we're not desperate for Christ. So how can we discern? How can we discern if the vision in our heart, if the desires in our heart are from God or are of ourselves? I just want to give you seven characteristics, quickly, you can jot these down in your notes, seven characteristics to filter and distinguish our desires from a God-given desire. First, a God-given dream, a God-given calling, a God-given vision is first and foremost relational, as we've been discussing. It's born out of time with Christ, it's born out of fasting, it's born out of desperation, it's relational. Again, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Are the desires of your heart born out of delighting yourself in Christ? I fasted and prayed for this church for seven years before we actually started it. And in the spring of 2003, this vision had so unsettled my spirit, I couldn't sleep. And that's what a vision does. It unsettles you. Because it's a picture of the future that makes the present reality unacceptable. And my vision was so stirred that I was so unsettled. And I was fasting and seeking Christ. And I prayed, God, if you want me to start this church, give me a name. And then one night at 3 a.m., there was a whisper, but it was a thunder, and it was so startling that I raised right up in my bed, and I lost my breath. And the name was HopeWorks. I wanted to name this church the Fellowship of Fort Worth. I thought that sounded grand, but I was obedient to, to the Lord. Two days later, I was thinking about that, and I thought... What was that? And the very next thing I read in Scripture was in the Psalms. I will visit you in the night seasons and instruct you in which way you should go. Sometimes people say, did God really speak hope works to you? And I say, all I know, that was 2003. This is 2019. And there's a building at the corner of Hempel and Allen with a sign out front that says, hope works. I know I didn't do that. Amen. God has a calling for you because he wants us to walk by faith, a stirring, an unsettling. Are your desires born out of desperation for God in relationship? Secondly, are your desires consistent with God's word? Psalm 119, verse 9. 
How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. We have to line everything up with scripture. What are your desires? Is it consistent with God's word? If it's not consistent with God's word, pray that God purge you of that desire and that you don't desire it any longer. Any leading must always be in sync with scripture or it is not God's leading. Scripture is the filter through which we discern Every thought, every desire, every direction. Third characteristic, it is to champion God's glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Fourth characteristic, it promotes deeper humility and Christ-likeness in your life. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's an opportunity to give our life away for the glory of God and the hope of the world. Fifth, it's affirmed by mature believers. Not always, but often. Proverbs 15, verse 22. We read, Without counsel, plans fell, but with many advisors, they succeed. Sixth characteristic, the Holy Spirit begins opening doors. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Seventh characteristic, it is impossible without God. Sometimes people have a desire, a God-given vision, a God-given calling, and they say, oh, that's too big, that must not be from God. Well, it's so big, it must be from God. You see, our proximity with God determines the size of our vision. Somebody with a very distant view of God has a very small vision, but somebody with a very close view of God has enormous vision. And we understand that it's, it's going to happen, but it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And we come to a place like God brought Abraham, where we realize, though time has passed since that vision was first planted in my heart, though I've seen a lot of sorrow, a lot of disappointments, I've, I've experienced a lot of setback, and even a lot of personal failure, but the dream hasn't died, but thank God the dreamer has died, and now all that remains is a totally surrendered soul, entirely desperate for and dependent upon the power of God for the glory of God and the ambition of Christ and Christ alone. And Moses told God, okay, so I go, so I say, let my people go, so I send them your message. They're going to want to know what God I represent. What should I tell them? What's your name? And God said, tell them my name is I am. I am. Yahweh. Louis Giglio writes of this. God was telling Moses, I am. That's my name. I am the center of everything. I am running the show. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I am the creator and sustainer of life. I am the savior. I am your source. I am more than enough. I am inexhaustible and immeasurable. I am who I am. I am God. And in a heartbeat, Moses knew God's name and something more. He finally knew his for if God's name is I am, Moses' name must be I am not. 
I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not the source. I am not the solution. I am not all-powerful. I am not calling the shots. I am not the owner of everything. I am not the Lord. I am not, and that's my name too, and yours. Just try it under your breath and see if this doesn't liberate you to dream God-sized dreams. My name is I am not. I am not running anything. I am not head of anything. I am not in charge of anything. I am not the maker. I am not the savior. I am not holding it all together. I am not all-knowing. I am not God, but I know I am. So first characteristic of a God-given dream is that God-given dreams are relational. It's a picture of the future that makes the present reality absolutely unacceptable. And it was born in our heart because we fasted, we prayed, we repented, we rejoiced in grace, we sought Christ day after day, and then our heart began to beat in sync with God's heart. And at last, we desire His desires, feel His burden, sense His cause, we're stirred by His urgency, and we rely upon His presence and power. The second characteristic that we need to know about God-given dreams is that God-given dreams are spiritual. They are birthed from heaven, therefore they are not of this world, they are not natural, they are supernatural, they are not carnal, they are spiritual, therefore the enemies of Christ will assault our dreams. There will be a full-out onslaught of resistance against our dreams. And this war began... Many years ago in heaven, in Isaiah 14, when Satan made the five I will statements, I will exalt myself above the throne of the Most High God, and then God cast Satan out of heaven. And from that point forward, Satan has been attacking and seeking to thwart every spiritual seed that Christ plants on this world in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. God-given dreams are spiritual. And therefore, God-given dreams have spiritual enemies. If you walk with Christ, you're going to dream God's dreams. And if people walk with Satan, they're going to assault God's dreams. They're going to hate God's dreams. They're going to despise God's dreams. There are dreamers and there are dream killers. And the dream killers are inspired by Satan who can't stand God's dreams. And sometimes there's no explanation for it other than that. It is a spiritual battle that we are in. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5, Genesis 37. Now Joseph had a dream. And by default, that means Joseph is going to have enemies. And people are going to try to thwart and destroy these dreams. And there's a progression against these dreams. And at any stage in this progression... Against these dreams, Joseph could have gotten scared, he could have been disillusioned, he could have been so discouraged, and he could have bailed out. But he continued to persevere, therefore the resistance began to increase. First stage of the resistance against God's given dreams is that the enemies will begin denouncing the dreams. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Why? Because there's dreamers and because there's dream killers, because we are in a spiritual battle. Verse 6, he said to them, 
Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Verse 7. And whereas a sin is not mentioned in the life of Joseph, we can perhaps ascertain that Joseph could at this point have increased in in, uh, diplomacy, perhaps humility. Verse 7. Behold, here's my dream. We were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that an awesome dream, Joseph thought? And his brothers didn't think it was so awesome. In fact, verse 8, his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They denounced his dream. They denounced his dream as pride. They denounced his dream as arrogance. They denounced his dream as, as self-exaltation. But it was none of those things. It was a seed that God himself put in Joseph's heart. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. And he said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. In other words, Mom, Dad, and you guys are going to bow down to me in verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves before the ground to you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept it in mind. Israel was discerning, and he kept it in mind. So the progression against God-given dreams is that people will attack the dream. Satan will attack the dreams and try to denounce and try to discredit it. And then they will begin to disdain not only the dream, they will begin to disdain the dreamer. Then the next step in the progression. Joseph's brothers go on an errand. Joseph's dad says, I'm going to send you to your brothers for a message. We pick up in verse 18. So they saw him from afar, and before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Let us throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Look at this disdain that has increased now into just discarding him. Let's just get rid of him. If the world were devoid of Joseph, the world would be a better place, verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, one of the brothers, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life, let's not shed his blood, let's throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, that they might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. So Joseph came to his brothers, and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that his dad gave him, that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty with no water in it. And the progression increases. The progression goes from denouncing the dream, discrediting the dream on the basis of the the wicked heart, and then disdaining both the dream and the dreamer, and then desiring that they could just discard the world of this dreamer. So they threw him into a pit, and now some Midianite traders come, and they have an idea to sell him as a slave. And let's look at verse 29. And when Reuben, Reuben returned to the pit, they saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes, returned to his brother, and he said, the boy is gone. Where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe because they sold him as a slave to these traders. And they took his robe and they said, how are we going to explain this to dad? They ripped it up 
They dipped it in an animal's blood. They took the robe to their dad, and they said, is this your son's robe? These guys are so manipulative. And of course, Jacob or Israel just begins weeping and grieving because in Jacob's eyes, his son is dead. And enough time, enough years begins to pass that even in the eyes of the 11 brothers, their brother is dead. God-given dreams are relational. God-given dreams are spiritual. They are spiritual seeds planted in our heart, which means that they will be denounced, they will be despised, they will be discarded, and every effort will be made to destroy the dream and the dreamer because we are in a spiritual battle. But every step of Joseph's life, like the people who, will be, who will be baptized today, every step of Joseph's life as he was in pursuit of this dream was an anthem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we said, there are similarities between David and Jesus. There are similarities between Moses and Jesus. There are similarities between Jonah and Jesus to help us have a better understanding of the purpose of Jesus in our lives So there are similarities between Joseph, a picture, a portrait, a type of Christ and Jesus. For example, Joseph was hated for his integrity. Genesis chapter 37, verse 5 and 6, he brought a report to his dad about their brothers, and they despised him for it. Likewise, Jesus was hated for his integrity. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He was set apart. Christ was set apart and despised because of it. John chapter 7 and verse 7. The world came. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works are evil. Just as Joseph was despised for his integrity, so Jesus was despised for his integrity because both both Joseph and both Jesus' integrity convicted the world of sin and the world hated Joseph and Jesus because of it. Not only that, Joseph was the sent one. Joseph's dad pulled Joseph to the side and sent him on a mission to his brothers. And don't you know, Joseph, who we will find out as we continue to walk through this series, is extremely discerning. He has an incredible leadership gifting. He has incredible instincts. He's very wise. He's very discerning. Don't you know he had a gut check in his spirit? Okay, I'll go to my brothers, but I understand this puts me in a really vulnerable situation. But he was obedient to his father, and he was sent to give the brothers a message. And in the same way, Jesus is the sent one. Jesus was sent by his father to this earth, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, knowing that the world would despise him. And we read, and, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for his sins. Jesus was obedient to the Father to be sent here, knowing that it would mean his slaughter. And just as Joseph was the scorned one, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 8, and all throughout Genesis, they scorned him, they despised him, they ridiculed him, they discredited his motives. So Jesus was the scorned one. John chapter 15 and verse 24, and we read, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. You see, Jesus was scorned. He's hated. Luke 19, verse 14. And we read, 
But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. A parable that Jesus gave about how he would be received. Joseph was hated for his integrity. Jesus was hated for his integrity. Joseph was the sent one. Jesus is the sent one. Joseph was the scorned one. Jesus was the scorned one. Joseph suffered a conspiracy against him. Here comes the dreamer. Let's destroy him. So Jesus suffered a conspiracy. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 3 and verse 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and... Jesus and Joseph were falsely accused. Joseph and Jesus were betrayed and sold as a slave. Joseph and Jesus were stripped of their robes. And Joseph was thrown into a pit where he was metaphorically killed, metaphorically because of his robe that was covered in blood. And in his father's eyes, he was indeed killed. And Jesus, who was stripped, who was tortured and thrown into the pit of death. And Joseph and Jesus' fathers grieved. Joseph's father, Jacob, wept and grieved. And God the Father had to close his eyes. And the sky grew black as the blood of Christ was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And Joseph and Jesus are exalted to the highest position. We'll see as we continue in this series that Joseph ascends to the highest level of leadership in the entire nation, second only to Pharaoh himself. So that if Joseph is traveling in a chariot through the city, that everybody would have to bow on their face before Joseph. And likewise, Jesus was exalted from the pit of death to the holy of holies, where every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Joseph forgave the brothers that betrayed him, and threw him aside and discarded him and tried to kill him. So Jesus forgives all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. As Joseph was in pursuit of his vision, and he was suffering one disappointment after the next, one setback after the next, one discouragement after the next, one betrayal after the next, he had no idea that his life was an anthem to the gospel of Jesus Christ, And a picture of the hope of the world being lived out through him. And so it is with us. As long as we're walking by faith and not by sight. And our hearts are set on the promises of God. And our eyes are fixed upon the faithfulness of God. And we don't allow the discouragement and the disdaining and the discarding and the destruction and the disappointments and the setbacks to thwart us. As long as our hearts are steadfast on hope in Christ then our life also is an anthem of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus will shine through us. Third characteristic of a God-given dream. First, God-given dreams are relational. Secondly, God-given dreams are spiritual. Thirdly, God-given dreams are eternal. It's the one thing that lasts. I was trying to lead a buddy of mine to Christ. We were, we were jogging, and... and I've been pouring into him for years, and I stopped, and he's, in my heart, I called him my rich young ruler friend, and, and I made eye contact with him, and I said, do you really think that the point of life is, is who can gather up the most toys before they die, and they somehow win at life? And he says, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. 
And I asked him, have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it? Life is more than that. And what matters, matters for eternity. And when our hearts are set upon Christ, Christ shines through us and our life is an anthem to His glory and eternal things happen with eternal significance and eternal longevity. But as God-given dreams are eternal, God-given dreams have Lazarus souls, they must die to live again. But as we've said, it's not the dream that dies, it's the dreamer that dies, so that we are totally dependent upon the dream giver. And only when we die to ourselves and live for His glory, and only when we die to confidence in what we feel and see, and we live for His eternal power, will His power then begin shining through us. Missionary to China, I'm sorry, missionary to the Akas in Ecuador, Jim Elliott wrote, It makes me boil when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotency of our action. Believers who know one-tenth as much as we do are doing 100 times more for God with His blessing and our criticism. Oh, if I could write it, preach it, say it, paint it, anything at all, if only God's power would become known among us. And how is God's power known among us? We die to ourselves and we trust in Christ, in Christ alone. His will, His word, His ways. As Jim Elliott continues to write, He makes His ministers a flame of fire. His ministers are a flame of fire. People who are set ablaze with a vision, with a dream, with a calling. People who are caught up in the midst of spiritual warfare. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. And he reflects upon this and asks himself this question. Am I ignitable? Am I ignitable? And then he writes, God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of anything. You want to know what asbestos is? Asbestos is a fireproof substance. Old buildings like this sometimes have asbestos in the adhesives. It's fireproof. And he says, am I ignitable or is there something asbestos? Is there something that can't be consumed? Is there something fireproof in my heart, mind, or motives? And he says, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. And then he prays, saturate me with the oil of the spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul? Short life. Ah, make me thy fuel, flame of God. God, I pray. Light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. God is looking for somebody who will believe him for for the impossible, whose heart will beat in sync with his, but who will be willing to die to themselves to live for his purposes and to not place any confidence in themselves, but to trust in his eternal power to cause these dreams to become reality for his glory the hope of the world and the edification of the church so let me leave us with two action steps one if your desires begin beating in sync with god's desires deepen that dream deepen it i read in billy graham's autobiography that he would go to that forest and preach to the tree stumps 
So from time to time, I go to the lake and I preach to the water and pray, God, turn this water into a sea of people. And as they roll into the rock of Christ for salvation, let them roll back out and gather more people to come back to the rock for salvation. It's a, it's, it's a relational thing. So be creative with it. Stir the vision. Habakkuk instructs us, write the vision plainly on tablets so that he may run with it who reads it. Deepen it. Write it down. Journal it. Pray it. Don't forget it. Because you might try to forget it, but you can't. Because years will pass, and one day, if you try to forget about that vision, it will haunt you at night. Just like I finally came to a place after 12 years of forgetting about the church that God had put in my heart, but God wouldn't let me forget it because it was haunting me. And it was a dream in my heart that was beating, that would not let me sleep. Because it was a picture of the future that made my present reality unacceptable. You can't forget about it. So you might as well deepen it and let it stir you. And then, dare the vision. Dare the vision. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4 through 6. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, what do you do with that? Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will do this. Verse 6. He will bring it forth. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and the justice as the noonday sun. So it is with Joseph. We're going to see that God indeed brought forth his righteousness as the light and the justice of his cause as the noonday sun. But it was God who did it. And God's going to do it in a way that nobody will pat us on the back. God is going to bring those dreams into reality in a way that everybody will just fall on their face in worship of God. And we will have one statement running through our prayers. God is faithful. God is glorious. Would you stand with me, please? person in pursuit of a God-given dream, realizing it or not, is an anthem of the gospel of Jesus Christ because Christ is shining through them. And that's exactly what we're about to watch as people follow Jesus in baptism and their life becomes an anthem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're prepared for baptism, you can slip out and change and we'll all meet you downstairs. It's where our baptistry is this morning. So would you bow your heads with me, please? How many of you would say, I desire from my heart to be alive with a vision? Would you just raise your hand? Me too. More importantly, God desires that for you. You know you're, you're praying the will of God when you're praying the word of God. And God's word says that he's willing that none of us should perish. And we know that God wants our heart to beat in sync with his heart. And that's a heart that's alive with a vision. Enslaved by the burdens of heaven liberated from the burdens of this earth with a sense of urgency with a calling I mean, we'd be so stirred for God's visions in our life that we can't sleep that we're willing to sacrifice everything and that when our Christ returns or when we pass to, to go be with him we are living by faith by desperate faith so that if God doesn't come through we absolutely sink we cling to his promises as, as, as our lifeline. And he will make it happen. He will make our righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of our cause like the noonday sun. And all of us will just say, praise you, Jesus. You are so faithful. You are so faithful. Glory to your name. 
Well, let's begin that now. Let's begin that with a prayer right now. I invite you to use this stage as an altar to present your bodies as a living sacrifice and say, God, if I've sold out for my dreams, for blue light specials that this world has to offer me, forgive me for it. Lord, if my heart's so divided, it's a mess that it's not delighting in you and I I don't sense your desires. As David prayed, unify my heart to fear your name. Bring me to a place where I satisfy my heart in Christ which is my calling, it's my purpose, and flood my soul with your desires. Let me be unsettled. Let me be burdened. Let me lose sleep. For your glory, the hope of the world. So, Father, you saw those hands, and we pray that we would all be stirred afresh with a vision. We pray that we would be soul set on fire with a calling, that our hearts would find the rhythm of your heartbeat, and we would share your burdens, we would share your urgency. And we would entirely rely upon your strength. So the altars are open and let's respond to worship with worship.